Revelation 21 is where we're going to be this morning. Revelation 21, 1 through 8. And as Ethan has touched on already, we're talking about the new heavens and the new earth. And uh, I'm glad for that because it says there'll be no more pain. Uh, Before church this morning, um, Carrie had to take those little salon paws. They're like, I smell like Icy Hot or Bengay or, you know, if you use oils, whatever combination oils smell like that stuff on the Walmart shelf. I smell like that, so be glad you're over there and I'm here. Um, but but I had to, Carrie had to put one of those like in the middle of my back, so I have the assurance that one day, um, one day there will be no more need for salon paws patches on my back. <laughs> Revelation 21, 1 through 8. If you're, if you're like, I don't even know where Revelation is, I'm brand new to the Bible, all jokes aside, go to the back. Just go to the back and it's about two chapters back from the very end. So Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Uh, this morning we're going to wrap up the mini-series we've been in, um, just called Gospel or The Gospel. And essentially the series has been uh, built around six key questions that we have attempted to ask and answer throughout this uh, short little series. And it's not, this has not at all been an all-inclusive or exhaustive uh, treatment of what the Gospel is, but there have been about six key questions that I feel like we need to answer, we need to at least ask and Uh, think through and see what the scripture has to say to us as our place of objective truth. We don't need to lay our feelings over on scripture and take our subjective thoughts, emotions, feelings, changing circumstances from the week, and then give those to the Bible and say, okay, God, now tell us, you know, tell us what you want to say. We come to the Bible and let it speak to us, and that's what we want to do this morning as well. So the title of the sermon this morning is The Hope of the Gospel. The Hope of of the gospel. I'm going to go ahead and give you our key question. If you're taking notes in your bulletin, jot this question down. The key question for this morning is, how does the gospel give us hope to endure in the midst of the darkest valleys of life? You can shorten that however you want to, but essentially this, how does the gospel give you hope to endure? How does the gospel give you hope to endure whatever it is you're facing, whether it's something as small as a salon pause patch on your back this morning uh, or some kind of tragic thing that happened in your family over the weekend? How does the gospel give you hope to endure as you walk through the valleys of life that are sure to come? Tim Keller uh, was the pastor, the planting pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, says this. He says, every human being is absolutely a hope-shaped creature. Every human being, every person here, is absolutely a hope-shaped creature. And I think he's right. Here's why. Every person in this room this morning is hoping for something. Every person this morning is hoping for something. Some of you are hoping for me to be finished, and I've just started. (laughs) Some of you are hoping for a really good lunch and someone to treat you to that lunch. Some of you are hoping for uh, the next four days to bring sunshine because we are all cooped up in our homes for a week. Some of you are hoping for a good report at the doctor. Uh, Some of you are hoping for a visit from your grandkids. Some of you are hoping for snow tomorrow, even though it's not coming to cancel that math test. Uh, Some of you are hoping for a good Christmas bonus this year so you can put in that swimming pool that your whole family is waiting for. But we are absolutely hope-shaped creatures, and Revelation 21 offers the joyful hope of restoration, restoration, and shalom. So two key words, well, we'll say three, because we have hope over here that I've said at least ten times now. Hope, 
restoration and shalom. Shalom is S-H-A-L-O-M. We'll talk about it in a little bit. So let's read Revelation 21 together. Revelation 21, 1 through 8. The Apostle John is writing. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Verse 8, but... As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Father, we pray this morning that you would open up the heavens, that you would open up the floodgates, Lord, that mighty rivers of your spirit would wash over us, That we would be filled, as Paul says, with the Spirit. Lord, as the Spirit carries your word to our spirit, Lord, that we would be filled up to the fullness of the stature of Christ as best we can today. Lord, I pray that you would take um, the, the erroneous paths in our thinking that we have gone down in relation to what our hope is in in this life. Lord, and and reorient those today through this text. And hopefully through some of the things that I'm going to say today, God. Reorient our thinking in a way that steers us toward where we're headed. That we would be, as Philippians 3 says, heavenly-minded citizens of another kingdom while we live on this earth. Father, I pray you would fill us, refresh us, Lord, and give us a sense of your presence today. Through your word, sanctify us in your word, Lord, because your word is truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So how does the gospel give us hope in the midst of our darkest valleys? If you've been coming to our church history lectures, um, some months ago I started uh, in the the century after Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, and I talked about a young lady named Blondina, B-L-A-N-D-I-N-A, looks like Blandina, Blondina lived in the mid to late 100s, uh, about 100 years or so after Christ. Blondina was a young slave girl who was physically handicapped. She, uh, maybe her legs weren't working properly or her neck or spine had some kind of injury or something, but she was physically handicapped. And if you were a physically handicapped person in that day, you were tremendously at a disadvantage. 
Um, Think about the beggar who sat every day at the beautiful gate and had to wait on people to give him alms. Well, this young lady had trusted Christ as her Savior. And so she was hoping for something beyond uh, where her legs could carry her in this life, we might say. Well, one day from sunup until sundown, uh, the Romans made a mockery of this girl. In order to make a point to the Christians living there in the city where she was living, they made a mockery of this young lady, uh, basically making sport of her, torturing her because she refused to worship the emperor as Lord, to worship Caesar as God. She would not offer incense to the emperor. And so they were going to make her pay as if she had not paid enough in her own physical pain and suffering. In the arena, the Romans hung her naked body on a cross to humiliate her, and they released a pack of wild animals to devour her, to pick her apart piece by piece as she hung there naked in front of this this crowd of people on this cross. But they refused to touch her. And so they took her body down from this cross, and they scourged her handicapped body. They whipped her repeatedly, probably until the flesh was falling off of her body, and she was bleeding profusely. When she still refused to offer incense to the emperor... They threw her to the ground and they turned loose a wild boar that came and gored a hole in her handicapped body and tossed her into the air in front of the people, in front of her Christian brothers and sisters, and her body landed with a crash to the ground, mangled in a heap. Her Christian brothers and sisters watched in agony as she suffered tremendous pain, tremendous persecution, tremendous humiliation, all because... She said, Jesus is Lord. She would not recant on her beliefs, even though it was going to cost her the only thing, the only meager thing she had left in this life, which was her physical body. She held fast to her Christian confession in the face of torture. Please listen to me when I say this. Oftentimes, people come to the book of Revelation. We come to the book of Revelation with this sort of awe-inspired uh, excitement, like we're going to treat it as if it's some sort of enchanted puzzle that we're going to decode and we're going to figure out and we're going to put it into a certain system that fits our theology and that we enjoy and we like to speculate over. The book of Revelation is not meant for us to decode. Don't miss the purpose of why John wrote to people like Blondina. Blondina was not sitting around on a beggar's mat trying to figure out the book of Revelation. Okay? She was not speculating on the, 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 the stars and the seasons and the end times events and sitting around wondering, when is this thing going to happen? Maybe it crossed her mind. But that was not the purpose of Revelation. Revelation is not a cosmic puzzle for us to solve. And we approach it that way for a number of reasons. We approach it that way, but we are not called to sit around and stargaze. You say, well, where do you see that in the scripture, Josh? Isn't it okay to kind of look to the skies? What were the disciples doing when Jesus ascended? Looking to the skies. And what did the angel say? Let me show you. Kicked him swiftly in the rear end. And he said, get busy. He gave you a commission. He told you what to do. So it's okay for us to wonder, you know, when is heaven going to break into our world? But we clearly have marching orders. And it's not to sit around and gaze at the stars and wonder about the signs and the times and say, he's coming back here, he's coming back there. I've told you all about the Millerites, I think it was, right? The ones that wrote the book, 
Uh, I'm sorry, different group, different group. The Millerites tried to peg it down as to when Christ was going to come. And so they all climbed up into the tree at the highest point in the place where they were living because they wanted to be close to Jesus when he came back. Well, they just wound up sitting in the trees for a good long while until everybody decided to climb down. There was a book written in 1988. I was five years old. 88 Reasons Why the World Will End in 1988. Well, we're still here 20 years later, right? 30 years later, excuse me. What happened in 89? Somebody decided they wanted to make a truckload of money, so what did they come up with? 89 reasons why the world will end in 1989, okay? Please listen to me when I say this. The purpose of John's revelation was to encourage people like Blondina, people like you, who are suffering and struggling in all kinds of places. He was writing to a specific group. Go look at it at the beginning. Churches in Asia. Suffering believers, and he was telling them, endure, hang on, persevere in your faith, because the hope of the gospel pictures a better day that is coming. We don't know when that better day is coming. But here's the truth. The scripture says that there is a beautiful restoration that is coming our way for every believer in Christ. When all the sad things of this life, all the sad things of this life will come untrue. So the reason believers like Blondina could hang on to a Christian confession in the face of horrific torture is because the gospel holds out something that no other world religion holds out. And you know what that is? Hope. Every other world religion out there, every single one, says do, 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 do. And you ask the question, when have I done enough? And you don't ever know. You know what Christianity says? Christ says, It is finished. All the other religions say, do. Jesus says, it's done. Well, what does God say here in Revelation? It is done. Sounds exactly like what Jesus said when he hung on the cross. It is finished. So when you rest in Christ, you rest in his grace. Listen, you rest in the promise that you can cease from your works attempting to please God to earn salvation. Now you do works because you know that he is pleased with you in your salvation. The works you do are not to make God happy with you. The works you do are because now you know God is happy with you in Christ. Tremendous difference between religion and relationship. The gospel holds out hope. So three simple truths I want you to see in this text today. The first one is this. In the gospel, we have the hope of a new creation to enjoy. A new world. A new world, some translations even say. Listen to verse 1. We're going to read it as we go through so you can see these truths in the text. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, Before I say too much here, let's be careful to note a very important point in the biblical timeline of this text. Danny Aiken points this out. In Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 1 and 2, at the beginning, who is not present in the first two chapters of Genesis? The devil. In Revelation 21 and 22, who is not present in the last two chapters of the Bible? Same one. In the first two chapters, it's all good, as we used to say back in the day. It's all good. I mean, that's what he said in the Hebrew. It's tov. 
It's all tov. It's all good. Why? Because there's no enemy. There's no sin. There's no stains and scars on you and I because of the sin we've engaged in and the sin we're born into. It's all good. And then in the last two chapters, guess what? It's all good. Because before that, the enemy is done away with and he's thrown into the lake of fire and he will never torment you and never come after you again. There will be no more Romans 7. The battle between the flesh and the spirit, that's gone at this point in the biblical timeline. Have you ever thought about that? That's awesome. And so John envisions a new heaven and a new earth. Why? Because this old one that is stained and scarred with sin has passed away. Now, there are two views here on what happens whether the earth is going to be done away with, destroyed, or whether it's going to be restored. Let me make a case for one, and, and feel free to disagree. It's, it's not a matter of parting fellowship. It's completely all right, but listen to this. John envisions a new heaven and a new earth because the old one has passed away, he says. Now, don't jump too quickly there. The word new, kainos, in the Greek, there's two different kinds of new in the Greek, indicates the quality of a thing that has been transformed. So 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. Well, what does that word in the Greek mean? It means that the form is still there. I'm still in this body. I'm still in this form. But there's a newness to the quality of what is inside this body. There is a newness. Kainos is the word that shows up here. So in the new heavens and the new earth, we don't see the kind of new that God is going to create something out of nothing. That's ex nihilo. Like God did not go down to Lowe's and get everything he needed to form the world and like go to work. Okay? God did not do that. What God did was he created everything out of nothing. But it says here there's going to be a new order. The quality is going to be transformed. So some hold a different view of that. It's no, no big issue here. But there does appear to be some degree of continuity from the material world that we have now to a material world that we are going to inhabit. Let me tell you why that is important. That is so crucial for you to understand. Let me explain. Because Christ was raised to a new glorified body, He was called the first fruits. You say, what in the world is a first fruit? First fruit is the first ingathering of the crop that promises there's more to come. So his resurrection body is called the first fruits of the resurrection. And who is going to come in behind him with resurrected glorified bodies? But us. If we're in Christ. So what you are promised is you're going to receive the same kind of glorified, perfect, physical body that Jesus had. Why did Jesus... Tell them, hey, give me a fish. They're like, you're a ghost. Why did he say, give me a fish? Like, I would say, give me a Kit Kat. Give me some sun drop, right? I ate all my kids' Kit Kats for Halloween. True story, did I not? I ate all the Kit Kats. And then I ate the Crunch Bars because that's my second. <laughs> okay? He said, give me a fish because he's going to prove to them I'm not a figment of your imagination. Like, a ghost can't eat. A spirit can't eat. So I'm going to eat this thing so you can see I actually have a body. Well, guess what? Sorry, I'm getting hot. Sorry. So he says, I'm the first fruits of this new thing that's going to be given to you. You're going to have a body and it's going to live and dwell on a new earth. Like you're not going to walk around on a walker. Nobody's going to put a salon pause patch on you. You're not going to go to the doctor and they're going to give you like a eh, okay report. There won't be a doctor. There won't be a waiting room. Like sometimes that's worse than the doctor. 
Tim Keller says we will experience cosmic joy, listen please, not in a purely immaterial condition. Okay? You will not exist in a disembodied spirit. That is a Greek idea that has crept into the church. That you will depart this body and somehow your spirit will just kind of float around. And I guess cartoons tell us play harps and sit on clouds and all look like babies. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Greeks wanted the body and soul to be separate forever because the body materially was bad. We don't get that in the Scriptures. We don't get that in the New Testament from Jesus. So when we die here before Christ returns, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord in this intermediate state. But when He comes, we will receive glorified bodies, perfect, with no flaws, like His own. Keller says, We will live in a restored material condition where the body and soul are together in perfect harmony forever. No other religion envisions that. We will not float around as disembodied spirits. Listen to this. He says we will dance. We will march. We will hug. We will eat. We will drink in the kingdom of God. We will feast. We will party. And it will be okay. It will be fun. It will be good. Some of us will laugh actually for the first time. Laughter is a good thing. Laugh. He says the sea will be no more. Now, I don't think it means there's no waters because water was present before. I mean, the whole thing's water, right? Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. But what this means is the ancients viewed the sea as the source of chaos, rebellion, and danger. Chaos, rebellion, and danger came from the sea because like, this was the thing they could not seem to tame. Remember Jesus being on the waters? Remember? And the storm sweeps in through the mountain pass there. And when the whole sea, a whole uh, sea of Galilee just goes crazy, what does Jesus tell it to do? Literally, be muzzled. Be muzzled. Like, zip it. Be quiet. Hush. And the whole sea stops. And I've sat on that. I've sat on, in a boat on that sea. Isn't that awesome, Linda? I've sat in a boat on that sea. And it's just like as still as this floor. And that's what happened instantly when Jesus said it. Why? Because he's the one that spoke the heavens and the earth into existence. He's the one that they recognize his voice. He's the one that they do exactly what he tells them whenever he says it. And so all of the the signs of chaos, rebellion, and danger are going to be gone. Those things will be disappeared in the new creation. But it also says we'll inhabit Inherit a heavenly city. Now, some people say this is the people of God. They take it more figuratively. I take it to be literal because there's a literal description of this city that's kind of hard to get around. It says it's going to come down to the new heavens and the new earth. So again, we don't just float up and like float through the skies. Okay, We don't actually go up to heaven. If you die right now, you go up to be with Christ, be with God. But he's coming down to where we are. I mean, that's the gospel. Like God came down to you to be where you are because you couldn't get to him. And even in the end, he's coming down to be where you are. New heavens and new earth are coming here. They're coming here. This new Jerusalem, you know what the, the name Jerusalem? I don't know how I missed this in my trip to Israel. Ethan pointed this out this week. You know what Jerusalem means? City of what? Peace. Jerusalem, shalom. Jerusalem, shalom. City of peace. So Jerusalem, has Jerusalem lived up to its name as the city of peace? No. But this new one is going to live up to this name, the city of peace. Why? Because God is going to dwell there in that city. 
Hebrews 12 speaks of believers arriving in this city of the living God. Like, when we go on vacation, we travel somewhere. We can drive an hour down the road somewhere. An hour. And like five minutes into the car ride, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Like, in one sense, that's an okay question for us to ask as Christians. Like, Jesus, are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? No. But it's coming. Like, we we want to arrive. Hebrews 12 says that believers are going to arrive in this city of the living God, the new city of peace, the heavenly Jerusalem, where untold numbers of angels are gathering in a feast. All the believers who are enrolled, their names are in the book of life, are there. So here's what I'm saying to you. You are waiting. If you're in Christ, this is not as good as it's going to get. So don't stake your hopes on this. This is not as good as it's going to get. You're waiting for a new creation that you will live in and a new body that you will thrive in and enjoy. Number two, in the gospel we have the hope of living in the presence of God for eternity. Listen to verse 3. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. He will tabernacle with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Just this past week, just in seven days, I sat with someone battling cancer. I listened to stories of former substance abusers talk about how God had freed them from substances, addictions. And I counseled with individuals just kind of here and there along the way, battling through personal struggles of individual brokenness. I don't think that anyone in this place this morning would say that our world is not broken. I don't think that anyone in this place would say, man... I just love it here. It's just great. Everything's the way that I want it. I've got all the money I want. I've got all the friends that I want. I've got somebody to cook my meals for me and take care of me. And I have no health issues and I have no sadness. And I'm never waking up depressed for no reason at all. Everything's the way I want it. No one would say that. Because we all look around this room and as we journey through life together, we know one another's stories to some degree and we know the brokenness that we all bring into this place. We all bring it into this place. In fact, I think that's one of the easiest ways that you can talk to people about Christ to start with their brokenness. Listen to their story. Hear where they are in their brokenness and say, you know, I've not experienced that, but can I tell you how God brought me out of something similar? And you start to share your story and share the gospel with them. Verse 3 reminds us that when your relationship with God is put right, when your relationship with God is put right, all the things that are wrong in this world will be fully and finally wiped away. But it all depends on that relationship with God. God's not just some kind of cosmic pharmacist dropping medications down on you to make everything better. He's going to, he's going to be with us just like Jesus incarnated into this world to be with us. He's going to dwell with us. And that, that presence is the thing that's going to fix all the broken things in our world. 
Do we have anybody who's a Lord of the Rings fan? Anybody in here? Okay, all right, good, 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 good. All right, so you're going to track with me. If you don't, I don't advise trying to read the books. There's too many confusing words. Just go watch the movies. <laughs> but there's this scene in the third book of the Lord of the Rings. Famous, famous quote. Samwise Gamgee, one of the heroes, says to Gandalf, he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What has happened to the world? Gandalf replies, a great shadow has departed. And then he laughed. Gandalf laughed. And, it, and the sound was like music or water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. Some of you feel like that is where you are in your life this morning. I've not heard laughter for a long time. I've forgotten what it feels like muscularly to smile. When I open my phone, I just get more texts of bad news that just keep coming in. Isaiah 25 prophesies this very thing I just read to you in this quote. That God will swallow up on His holy mountain the covering of death that is cast over who? All peoples. And He will wipe away tears from all faces. So here's the tragedy. We read Revelation 21 at a lot of funerals. You know why? Because there's sadness and there's weeping and there's grief and pain. And we promise that these things will be done away with, which is true. But we zero in on verse 4 and we miss verse 3. And we come to love the gift more than we love the giver. But there would be no verse 4 if there were no verse 3. He dwells with us and therefore he is able to wipe away that tear from your face. The danger is loving the blessing more than the blesser. Charles Spurgeon said this in my, one of my quiet times this week. Listen to this. He himself is the sum total of my soul's inheritance. Not merely his grace, not merely his love, nor his covenant, but Jehovah himself. John MacArthur said this will be the culmination of all divine promise and human hope. This Being with God is the end point, the consummation, the culmination of all of God's divine promises. That he will be with us and we will be with him. Verse 5 says, He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Verse 5 speaks of someone who is seated. That's a position of authority. He's seated. On a throne, which is a place of authority, and he himself is the creator and consummator, the beginning and the end of all history. You say, well, Josh, how do I know I can trust what you're saying the Bible says this morning? Don't listen to me. Go to Revelation 21 and look at verse 5 where he says, write it down. Write it down. He says, I'm the alpha and I'm the omega. I'm the beginning and I'm the end. He says, I am making all these things new. He says, my words are trustworthy and true. Number three, in the gospel, we have the hope that our deepest longings will be satisfied. We have the hope that our deepest longings will be satisfied. At the end of verse six, there's this strange little part that I could not figure out as I was trying to study through this passage. How does this in verse six fit with everything he just said? Listen to what it says in verse six. 
After he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, it's done. He says, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Well, where in the world did that come in? How does that fit in with what he is saying right here? Is a curious promise to give a blessing to the thirsty. How does that fit? Well, Matthew 5 and verse 6, Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus promises something that's interesting. That to those who know that they are spiritually dry, that they are spiritually thirsty for God's righteousness, that God is going to do something for them. What's he going to do? Satisfy them. He's going to fulfill them. He's going to give them something that satisfies and fulfills this thirsty longing of the soul. See, we try to quench it with so many other things in this world, but you weren't meant to do that. I wasn't meant to find lasting joy and satisfaction in the things of this life. It will not quench the thirst of your soul. That's why right here at the end, Jesus says, I'm going to give a drink that's going to quench your thirst for all eternity. Tim Keller makes a beautiful connection to what Jesus said on the cross. Remember when Jesus hung there on the cross? And he was paying the full price for your sin. And one of the sayings from the cross, he said what? I thirst. Remember that? He hung on the cross. You remember that? He hung on the cross and he said, I thirst. Interesting connection back here that God's going to give something to the thirsty. Keller says, Christ was experiencing on the cross the cosmic thirst that you and I deserve. The separation from his father who gives him that thirsty, uh, that, that quenching drink of eternal life from the, the, the water of life. He says, Christ was experiencing that cosmic thirst so that you and I could drink deeply from the river of life without having to pay for it. That's the gospel. That Christ experienced that utter parched wilderness, dry land hanging on the cross, separated from his father so that you could be reunited with the father and you could drink from the river of the water of life. Verse 7 says, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, faithless, detestable, as for the murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Go back to Psalm 1 sometime this week and read the two ways. The way of the righteous, the way of the wicked foreshadowing what's going to happen here. There will be a parting between those who are righteous in Christ and a parting between those who are wicked because they have trusted in themselves. So let's answer the question and then we'll be through. How does the gospel give us hope to endure? How does the gospel offer you hope today to endure? We have the hope of a new world to live in. We have the hope of living in the presence of God and we have the hope that in Christ one day all of the longings that we feel, that we've tried to fulfill here, will be satisfied in Him. You know what that means? If you're in Christ, if you've repented of sin and placed your faith in Jesus for salvation, you know what that means? The glory days are not back in the 50s somewhere. I talk about the glory days. For the Christian, the glory days are always out in front of you. Always. Always. They're never behind you. You're, it's, it's never getting worse for you as a believer in Christ. Do you understand that? 
The new heavens and the new earth assure you that the enemy that is, is tormenting your soul and your mind and coming against you in every conceivable way right now, he's going to be done away with and you don't have to defeat him. Because you can't really, right? Christ is going to do it for you. And then one day you get to inherit everything that he's promised to those who simply believe in his free offer of salvation. Your glory days are not behind you. Like, I don't know what John Mellencamp was singing about. But they're out in front of you. You're going to receive a glorified physical body. There will be no more little semi-yellow-brown bottles on your windowsill with white caps that you shake around and figure out, when have I got to go down to the pharmacist and get it refilled? You'll never do that. There will be no ambulances in heaven. There will be no sirens that ring and wake you in the night when someone's coming to your neighbor's house or to your house. All those things will be gone. Like, what a promise. And you have to do absolutely nothing to inherit it. It is a free gift so that you and I can't boast, but we glory in the fact that it's been given to us. Christmas is around the corner. Somebody gives you a gift. Do you brag about how good you are to have earned that gift? No. What do you say? Thank you. That's it. Bishop J.C. Ryle said this. Their warfare, your warfare, their warfare is accomplished. Their fight is over. Their work is done. They shall, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. Listen, you, I'm going to say you. From now on here, you are traveling on towards an eternal weight of glory to a home which will never be broken up, to a meeting with no parting, to a family gathering with no separation, to a day with no night. Faith will be swallowed up in sight and hope in certainty. There will be no more faith. It will become your eyesight. It will become your reality. You will be in the presence of Christ. Does that not excite you? It ought to thrill you with, with, with joy unspeakable that you wake up in the morning and you go, this is out in front of me, not because of anything I've done, but because of everything that Jesus has done for me. That's grace. The gospel is our certain hope that you and you and you and you and you and you and me can endure. That Blondina can be thrown on a red-hot grill and gored and stripped and scourged because a better day's coming. Tim Keller said, every human being is a hope-shaped creature. You're all hope-shaped creatures. You're hoping for something. God built us to have and hold on to hope. Here's my question. What are you hoping for today? Is there anything in your life that's become so big and so important and so fearful and so anxious or whatever? Is there anything in your life that is distracting you from living like a heavenly-minded citizen of His kingdom because you're so fixed to this one down here? Confess it. That is sin. The Bible calls that sin. Confess it. Repent of it. Have your joy restored. Receive that fellowship afresh. 
Is the gospel something that you mentally and emotionally reserve for this place in this room one hour a week? Do you wait for me to get up here and get hot and throw my jacket down and get excited and shout? Is that what you wait for? Or is the gospel with you at Tuesday afternoon, 3 o'clock, as you're waiting on the news to come back from the doctor? Is it with you in the workplace? Is it with you around the kitchen table with just you and your spouse? The gospel is not a Sunday morning thing. The gospel is an everyday promise that you hang on to and you cling to. And it clings to you. You don't put it on the shelf when you go to school. You don't put it on... Students, please listen to me. I know it's 12 o'clock. We're about done. Listen to me. Don't put the gospel on the shelf. Listen to me. Students in the back, listen. Don't put the gospel on the shelf for the social acceptance of some 14-year-old sitting around you right now that you won't even talk to in 10 years. Every person older than you in here just said, Amen. You didn't hear them, but they said it. Don't put the gospel on the shelf because you just want to be accepted in this certain environment. But when I come to church, it's okay to act like this. And I can't figure out which side I'm on. Listen, be on his side. Choose this day, young people. You're like, who's young people? Whoever you want to be. (laughs) Choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods across the river or Jehovah. Don't put the God, the gospel is eternal. The social acceptance you feel in your math class is 45 minutes long. And then you go look for it in your English class somewhere. When you go to work, don't put the gospel on the shelf. When you go to the ball field, don't put the gospel on the shelf because, well, I just kind of hate to miss this ball game for church. Don't put the gospel on the shelf for anything. Jesus didn't leave anything on the shelf for us. Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. Our allegiance belongs to this king that's coming. What are you going to do? Look at him and say, well, this kind of took up a lot of my time and my resources. Good gracious, no. He's the cosmic king that's coming to give you everything you've longed for. Don't look for it in anywhere else. When you go home to your family, don't put the gospel on the shelf. Is Christ the sum total of your portion and inheritance? Is he the sum total of what you're going to inherit? Yeah, we're looking forward to the blessings, but do we really want that blesser? Would heaven be heaven for you if you inherited all the blessings of the new kingdom that Jesus was missing? Spend some time this week meditating. On what is to be yours. If you have trusted in Christ. Verse 7. Is your reality. That's your heritage. That's your portion. It's coming to you. You're going to be called a son and a daughter of the most high king. But hear me clearly. If you do not know Christ Jesus. And you're trusting in anything else. For salvation. It will not pass that test in eternity. If you're living for this world, please know this. This is as good as it's going to get. Enjoy that sunshine. That's as bright as it's going to get for you. 
Enjoy that money while you're spending it because you're going to be broke in eternity. Enjoy the social acceptance and the approval if that's your God. And my heart aches saying that because I've battled with that. Teenagers, I understand that. Don't deny Him before people. Glory in the gospel of the kingdom. Treasure the giver and hold on to hope as you wait for His coming. Hold on to hope because hope is holding on to you. Let's pray. Father, your promises to us are really pretty much unfathomable. I've spent seven days, I think, from last Sunday night all the way till this moment, looking at this passage, trying to wrap my mind around really what it is that I'm going to inherit that is my portion because of what Christ has done for me. I can't fathom it. I don't deserve it. I so often chase after things of this world and this kingdom. Like Paul in Romans 7, I want to to walk in the Spirit. But my flesh just keeps coming after me. Give me eyes to see. Give these people today eyes to see, Lord, all that is theirs. The free gift. And all they have to do is turn from sin and trust in the gift of grace that is given in Christ. And all of the fullness of the last six weeks that we've talked about belongs to them. We are looking forward to a newness that we cannot even understand. To a physical body. To friendships and reunions. And spouses that have passed on. Knowing that the shalom, the peace, the new Jerusalem, the new city of peace, we will dwell in for all eternity. And God, you will be with us. That is an awesome promise for us, Lord. Tomorrow when the world says hurry up and get going on your schedule and think about this and work out your plans. Lord, let us us be heavenly minded citizens of a kingdom that is unshakable. God, we look forward to that day. I pray that the things of this world would become flimsy, plastic, and cheap in our eyes. So that we would treasure the glory that is going to be shown and given to us in Christ, the Lamb who will be the light of that city. We thank you, Lord, for the promises of heaven. Let us be heavenly good on this earth as we walk it. Let us make the most of this time, knowing that the days are evil and things are going to go bad to worse, as Paul said. But we don't have to be pessimistic in our attitude. We don't have to be spiritual Charlie Browns. We can look forward to the glories of the new kingdom that is coming our way. That is guaranteed by the one who says, write it down. I'm the beginning. I'm the end. These words are trustworthy and true. We make our prayer to you. 
because of Jesus, through your spirit. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So here's what we're going to do. I changed things up a little bit. If you look at the bottom of your um, worship bulletin, you'll see a song. They would be fine to sing if we weren't preaching about something about the new heavens and the new earth. So here's what we're going to do. I got excited preaching this morning. I don't know if you got excited listening to it, but I got excited. And I think we need to go out singing a song of excitement and joy, marching forward towards where we are headed. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing the song that we kicked off with when we all get to heaven. Y'all good? Everybody good? Right good? And here's what your part in this is, okay? Your part is, if you are a follower of Christ, you are to sing this like you mean it, okay? You're, I mean, really, like sing it like you mean it. I'm not going to wait down front and face you. Don't, I'm not going to watch you, okay? I'm not even going to listen to you because I'm going to sing myself. Sing it like you mean it. Like, let's let the churches down the street hear us singing that we are headed towards this new Jerusalem, this new heavenly kingdom. So let's go ahead and stand. We're going to sing a really odd song. I want you to sing it with everything you got, and then we'll close in prayer.